0: Now, in the days of the Second World War, it was a universal excuse for almost anything. If the post was late, if the tea was cold, no matter what was wrong, you could always silence complaints with the words, You do know there's a war on, don't you? Well, I'm part of that fortunate generation who have never heard that sentence, except in a comedy television series. It may surprise you, therefore, that I want to use them this morning, but without a trace of humour. You do know there's a war on, don't you? Because there is indeed a war on, and it's no joke. It's a cosmic struggle throughout the universe in which we're engaged with hidden spiritual forces. And if we really understood, if we really guessed how malicious and spiteful and vehement and dreadful those forces are, they'd scare us witless. The fact that they're concealed is a great mercy, but it's a danger too, because we might be tempted to underestimate what they can do, the damage they can cause, or even worse, not to believe that they're there at all. Now, I'm I'm not going to spend time this morning trying to convince you of the existence of spiritual forces of evil. It's enough for me that Jesus believed in them. It's enough for me that Jesus himself grappled personally with them in the desert after his baptism. And if that was his experience, that's enough for me. If you're a committed Christian, you will know the frequency and power of temptation. Of course, there are those who argue that temptation is something that comes up from within ourselves. And in his letter, James, in chapter 1, says that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own evil desire, and that's true. But it's only half the story. I don't know about you, but my temptations always come at exactly the wrong, or maybe the right time. You see, I am not tempted to doubt the truth of God's word when Jenny and I are walking in the gardens at Wakehurst Place on our day off. But as I sit in my study grappling to make the truth of God's word relevant, to make it understandable, to make it palatable, I am Assaulted with a constant, relentless assault. Why? (laughs) Well, because my spiritual enemy knows that that's where I'm most vulnerable. That's where he can cause most damage, and he always fights dirty. He knows how to trick me into lowering my guard, and then go in for the kill. Well, all that is subjective. Looking inward. For objective truth from outside, we need to go no further than God's word. So if you turn with me, please, to page 1177, if you've got a Bible there open in front of you, 1177, Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It's part of our study series on what a Christian needs to grow in faith. And as you see from the notice sheet, the title is Knowing Your Spiritual Enemy. Now, every Christian needs to know their spiritual enemy because, as C.S. Lewis said, the devil's best tactic is to get himself laughed at. But as I've already pointed out, this is no subject for humor. Jesus himself knew from personal experience how fierce the struggle could be, and Paul certainly took it seriously. On the wall of every minister's study should be a great big word, kiss. Now, that isn't to remind them to caress their spouse, essential as that is from time to time. It's to remember the indispensable advice, keep it simple, stupid, that's what it means. Keep it simple, stupid. So, I want to tackle this passage very simply and just give you two points this morning, two points. First of all, we've got to identify our spiritual enemy, find out who he is, and learn a little about his strategy, and then we've got to find out how to deal with him. So, who is he, and how do we deal with him? Look at verse 12. It gives the answer very, very, very simply. Who are we up against? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There can be no doubt about it, can there? That's who we're fighting. That's who we're up against. Last week on the PM programme on Radio 4, a science teacher from a comprehensive school was pitted against Richard Dawkins in a, uh, a discussion about whether the concept of intelligent design should be taught as part of the science curriculum. Apparently 20 eminent scientists have written to the newspapers demanding that it should be made illegal to teach such nonsense to impressionable youngsters. This is, of course, as you will understand, on the ground that teenagers are so incapable of making up their own minds that they will believe everything their teachers tell them. Some hope. Well, in the same week, it was suggested that no less an object of scientific veneration than Einstein himself could be wrong. His theory of relativity lays down that nothing can travel at a greater speed than that of light. And now some, some researchers in Switzerland seem to have been able to send subatomic particles to Italy, to some colleagues in Italy, faster than light. And the whole of the scientific establishment is in a tizzy. Well, the research hasn't been independently verified, and Einstein may well be vindicated after all, but what this demonstrates to me is the absolute stupidity of arrogance. My own elder son, who holds an Oxford physics doctorate, said something years ago that stuck in my mind ever since. He said, the mark of a true scientist is the humility to admit that there is so much that he does not know and understand." All the same, it's very easy to get angry with Professor Dawkins and his like, to identify him as one of our chief enemies. We would be wrong. Human beings are not our enemies, even though they attack everything we stand for. They are our our opponents, certainly, but they're not our foes. And we mustn't blame and insult them. We've got to love and pray for them many of us pray for Richard Dawkins I don't I should start shouldn't I all through the history of the church Christians have fallen into the temptation of attacking people when our real enemies are not human at all our struggle is not against flesh and blood this is a spiritual battle we're fighting spiritual foes they're invisible but they're real It seems to me there's not much to be gained by making great efforts to classify them or to understand their hierarchy. They are creatures. That is, they were fashioned by the same creator who fashioned us. And clearly, at some time, they rebelled against him in the same way we did. The Bible gives us tantalizing glimpses of war in heaven with powerful good angels fighting powerful bad angels. But it's pointless to try to work out how these things ...are in detail. Because, you see, we have to be aware of dualism. The idea that lies behind some ancient Eastern religions... ...that the world is governed by spiritual forces of good and evil... ...which are equal to one another. Now, it's ultimately clear from God's word... ...that evil will be defeated. In fact, it's been defeated already. Our Saviour won the victory on the cross. He triumphed over every evil power. Those wonderful words that we were singing. Once for all, death was overthrown. Once for all, he won the victory. Yes! But you see, just as the Nazis went on fighting after D-Day, and the course of the war ground on for a long time, and many thousands of men were killed, and the destruction of Europe went on, so, even though Satan and his hosts have been defeated, they will go on struggling But the final outcome is assured. In the end, we will share our saviour's victory. Okay. So much for fighting against them. Now let's turn just briefly to the more important question of how we fight them. And the answer, of course, is in the passage before us. I can remember, and maybe you can as well... Um, endless cardboard models of Roman soldiers carefully made by loving Sunday school teachers to explain the full armor of God. And I'm sorry, I haven't got one to show you. You'll have to use your imagination. But it's a good idea just to go through the various accoutrements that Paul describes here, because if we use them properly, they're wonderfully useful in overcoming temptation. So have a look at verse 13. Um... Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God, not just bits of it, but the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of a Christian who faces temptation, wins the battle, and is still standing. I'm sorry, So often that's not my experience. If you're anything like me, you get knocked over in the first skirmish. But you can always get up again. You know, one of the most wonderful and encouraging things that anyone said to me that was stuck in my mind. It's not falling that's worst, but staying on the ground. You don't have to stay on the ground. You can fall, but you can get up again. And Alexander White, as I've quoted to you endlessly, the perseverance of the saints is falling down and getting up, falling down and getting up, falling down and getting up, all the way to heaven. Verse 14. Stand there with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, as believing Christians... Our true status is not that of miserable sinners. Dear friends, there is no such thing, or there should be no such thing, as a guilty Christian. Because the Lord Jesus had taken the guilt away. you remember the words we were singing? Before the throne of God above I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest... Who reigns above whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his heart. My name is graven on his hands. And while he lives in heaven, no voice can bid me thence depart. Because you are not guilty. Neither am I. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now the devil will try to undermine that. Of course he will. That's his favorite weapon. But we mustn't let him succeed. We stand. With verse 14. The belt of truth buckled round your waist. And the breastplate of righteousness. Christ's righteousness in place. And then in verse 15. We have the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In other words the power of God's word, the power of the gospel. Now, last week, we were uh, treated to a wonderful testimony from Martin, Martin Hall. Just blow my nose, excuse me. Did that in the middle of a Holy Communion service at Beaconsfield and didn't tell the sound person and nearly killed all the old ladies of shock. Anyway. Last week, Martin was sharing with us about the transforming power of the gospel. And he was talking about how a scientist believes in God. And he was saying the most objective truth that he can see is the effect of the gospel in people's lives. The effect of the way in which people are changed. The readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Much earlier in my ministry... um, I knew a consultant psychiatrist who had been a a missionary doctor in West Africa, and while she was there, she'd seen rather she'd seen the spiritual forces of evil at work in a far more blatant and open way than anything our skeptical outlook is capable of perceiving. And she'd she'd never forgotten that, and she shared this with me. She said that the forces of spiritual wickedness we face could, if we allowed them. They could twist us round their little finger. Our only security lies in the one who stands beside us, the risen glorified Christ, and he makes them sick with fear. The truth is that our only security is to be found in him, the transforming power of the gospel, that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. Okay, verse 16. We're told about the shield of faith. Verse 16, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Maybe you don't think you have a very robust shield or like me, you have one which has been chipped and dented over the years. Well, don't worry. The way to strengthen and renew your shield is not to polish it so that it looks good But to admit that it's only the Holy Spirit who can give you the ability to go on each day as a Christian and to defend and to develop rather a greater sense of trust and confidence in God. That's how you strengthen your faith, to realize your dependence more and more and more. It's a wonderful paradox, a wonderful seeming contradiction. The way to grow in faith is to admit that you're weak. But it's true. And then the next two verses, uh, pieces of armor are vital. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We read from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, didn't we? Paul was um, being a bit naughty in these verses. You see, the Corinthians said about Paul, they said, oh yes, that Paul, yes, I've heard about him before. When he's not here, he's wonderfully bold, but when he's here, he's just milk and water, he's timid. So Paul says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, Paul, who am timid, When face to face, but bold when I am away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be bold as I expect to be towards people who think we live by the standards of this world. He was going to give give them a real wigging. But then, because Paul can't can't go on being stroppy with people, he turns to the reality of the spiritual life. Verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I love the translation in the authorised version. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Can't you get that wonderful picture? The devil's strongholds are there. And the weapons we fight with are mighty through God, so that like some great demolishing chain with a, with a huge, great metal ball on it, it swings back and crashes into the devil's citadels, and they come crashing down. Our spiritual enemy is no match for the truth of God's word. And the fact that we're saved by a sovereign God. Nothing can snatch us out of his hands. And when confronted by that, the devil just runs away. And verse 18 is um, the last weapon in the armory mentioned here. All prayer. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind... Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It doesn't mean that you've got to spend your life on your knees with your eyes shut. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that the communication channels between you and your heavenly father have got to be open all the time.